Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community getting angry, venting their spleen and pulling the world to rights. The podcast that is Historian Therapy. I'm public historian Paul Bavel and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and fellow historian Kyle Glover. Hello! And joining us this week, we've got a very special guest, one we've been trying to get to for quite a long time now, but due to a couple of tech issues. But we got there. We have historian, author and journalist Annabelle Venning. Now, Annabelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi to you both. Thanks for getting me on. I have run across you on the basis of A, knowing the family and B, uh, being an absolute fanatic about your book, The To War With The Walkers, which I'm going to let you wax lyrical about uh, it, but <laughs> thank you very much yeah, you're, you're absolutely welcome it really is a stunning read um but for the people that are out there that uh, haven't stumbled across the joy that is to war with the walkers um annabelle tell us and our listeners a bit about yourself your career your work yeah sure so i'm a i'm a, a journalist and author I've done two books. The first was um, Following the Drum about army wives throughout history. And my second one, which came out two years ago now, To War with the Walkers, it's it's really the Second World War through the prism of one family. And that family, the Walkers, was my grandfather's family. So he was one of six siblings, four boys, two girls, and they were all aged 20 to 30 when the war broke out in 1939. Ooh. So they all were really closely, heavily involved in the Second World War, one way or another, whether it's whether on the home front or actually fighting. And um, my grandfather, Walter Walker, who went on to become a general and fight in lots of other wars, he he was the third of the six, and he he joined the army from San, from school went to Sandhurst and his brother Edward was also in the army but the other four of them you know had never intended to be in a war and then like many people in 1939 just found themselves thrown into it so there was three three brothers fighting in Burma in Malaya um, and in Italy and then there was one brother and a sister who were at St Thomas's Hospital as a nurse and a doctor both of them were were bombed in the blitz when St Thomas's was hit St Thomas's was hit 10 times and mm. Ruth was under one bomb got buried and dragged out alive and Harold was under another one when the you know whole building more or less collapsed and he was pulled out less alive in a coma with a fractured skull but he survived and then the um sixth sibling well actually the second but the sixth one I'm talking about B she was um on the home front in the war and she was married to an American pilot well American RAF officer and I won't uh, I won't do any plot spoilers but but it's really how all six of them you know what happened to them in the war and all of them had really quite dramatic experiences you know either being literally bombed or taken prisoner or really really extraordinary things happening to them on practically every front in the war so it's really it's one ordinary family doing extraordinary things yeah i mean uh, all six had their lives almost irreversibly changed by the events that they experienced through that through that one story yeah yeah like i said i couldn't i couldn't really put it down Thank you. Um, I hadn't had it. I hadn't had it on audiobook, and I sat in. I sat in my work car park, waiting to find out what happened to Ruth. Oh, that's brilliant! <laughs> I was almost <laughs> late for work. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a big. Um, I like 
sort of family sagas and I read, you know, the Cazalets and things like that. So I sort of slightly had them in mind when I was writing it. But even I was surprised, you know, I was thinking when I started out on it, I knew that Ruth, the youngest one who was the nurse, had a dramatic story. And I knew that Walter, my grandfather, had a very dramatic story. But but as I kept kept on digging, I kept going, oh, my goodness, another thing. You know, I had just had no idea that so much could happen to one family. I suppose for six of you, it does up the odds. But even so. And everybody, no matter what their background, everybody thinks their own family is remarkably dull until you actually start <laughs> digging true. into and, and finding there. So I yeah. think that's one of the things that makes genealogy and the family history that people are getting into and things like who do you think you are and so forth. So yeah. to fascinate is just uncover. I mean, I, I only had to go one generation back to find I've got a completely different grandfather to the one that everybody actually thought. Oh my goodness. And I had one that was, um, he was killed in the First World War in 1917 and nobody had ever mentioned him. As far as my father was concerned, he was his granddad was somebody else. Yeah. Um, and so I managed to track that down from a birth certificate and end up locating like his war memorials and graves and finding his story. And just, like, wow. It's really interesting stuff that, wow. that was just not even there. But, and yeah, wow. and that's, that's what I got out of to war with the walkers and the, and the fact that people that not even remotely of my background, you know, you, you can still relate to them. Thank you. Um, anyway, so moving on from your, you know, greatest work, we're going to talk about your greatest hate. Um, <laughs> So so tell us, Annabelle, yeah. please tell us the one thing that you wish people would just get over or stop believing. Okay, so what I really hate and what drove me slightly nuts last year was when everybody on the telly and in newspapers referred to the E-Day as the end of the war. It was not the end of the war. So VJ Day was more or less the end of the war even then fighting continued after after vj day in some in some places but victory in europe in may 1945 yeah. we've, we've still got three months of really very you know hideous fighting and of course then you know as we know the atomic bombs that finally ended it but between you know may and and bombs dropping you know there was there was stuff going on in all sorts of theatres, obviously, I know most about the Far East, but it, it does drive me insane when I'm reading, you know, the war diaries of Walter's regiments, 4th, 8th Gurkhas, and they're listening to VE Day being announced, you know, and the sort of cheering in London and a radio in the middle of the jungle in Burma. And that was all pretty much on the eve of their toughest battle, arguably their toughest battle of the whole war yeah. at a place called Tongdor where, you know, they they suffered quite a lot of casualties, not compared with the Japanese who they beat. Uh, but, you know, there were people lying with their stomachs blown open and, and, and not being able to get medical care and so on. Uh, and so it was perfectly right that people were celebrating victory in Europe back in London. But what I find, you know, incredibly irritating, and I suppose I, I sort, of, sort, of, sort of resent, really, is that when everyone's focusing so much on that, they don't really give a thought to what was happening elsewhere. And all these people like Walter still fighting or like Peter, who was a prisoner of war in Thailand mm. and had had three and a half years of absolutely brutal treatment. and was, you know, many people around him still dying, still being tormented and brutalized by the yeah. Japanese, you know, and that all kind of gets forgotten about. And then by the time it gets to VJ day, you know, we've had all the street parties and it's, feels like a little bit of an afterthought I mean 
I have to say, last year, the BBC did do a fantastic celebration of BJ Day, you know, outside Buckingham Palace. And um, they had... It wasn't a bank holiday, though, was it? No, it wasn't. No. It wasn't. It wasn't. And, you know, why isn't there a bank holiday for BJ Day? And there was a lot of um, quite rightly ill feeling from people whose fathers and so on, you know, served in the Far East. Uh, You know, why shouldn't they be remembered? Yeah, exactly. And I think we're, when you mentioned sort of three months of war left, if you, you if you're sitting out in Burma on May the fifteenth, nineteen forty five, there is absolutely no sign that that war is coming to a close any time no. soon no. at all. You know, and that's no. that's an enemy that we fought with everything from swords and daggers up to prototype weapons. Yeah. And you know, there, there's just no hint of it. You know, we had to drop the atomic bomb twice. To get yes. a surrender. Yeah. You know, and even and then, you know, in, in the Borneo jungle, there were a lot of Japanese who fought on, refused to surrender until September, October. Yeah, I'm with you on this, Annabelle. It drives me up the wall. So sort of this far after the close of the Second World War, then, why do you think everybody is always focused on the war in Europe? I can see why they were focused on the war in Europe then, because if you've been sitting there on the receiving end of your of German air raids, you know, the surrender of Germany, street party. I'm totally yes. with you on that. Yes. But now, 70, 80 years later down the line, you know, why do we still, why do you think we still look at VE Day in that manner? And again, VJ Day remains to be this afterthought. Yeah, it's it's really strange, isn't it? I mean, it. I think there's a lot of different things that come into play. So um, the war in the East was much less reported than the war in Europe. You know, you didn't really have journalists and photographers accompanying the troops like you did on D-Day and, and the Normandy yeah. campaign. Um, it was very, communications were very difficult. You know, letters took much longer to get home. There were no real, you know, very few t- uh, radio broadcasts. Um, there was one photographer at Kahima, I mean, which was, you know, one of the biggest battles in the East. And, and that was only by accident and, and he didn't stick around for very long. Um, and the other person I slightly blame, if I'm being honest, is Churchill, because mm-hmm. he didn't take an awful lot of interest in the war in the East compared with the war in Europe, um, except when it was going wrong. Um, and, then he, <laughs> and then he, you know, was furious about Singapore and said what a utter, you know, humiliation and defeat and disaster it was. But, you know, he'd starved the war in the East armies of of resources all this time the focus had been on north africa and then later europe and the armies in the east only ever got you know what was left in terms of resources they you know they got the old kit not very much of it and i think you know and i think he was so much more focused on on the war in the west and when he came to write his history of the war you know i think you could really see that so the other thing is that some evidence suggests that he, he he wasn't a big fan of the Indian Army, and he he, he repeatedly ignored his, its achievements. I mean, when you you yeah. look at great, you know, justified celebrations of the deliberate Dunkirk, well, you know, Slim General Slim Field Marshal Slim, as he later was, pulled off an even arguably even more incredible. Um, deliverance of his army in Burma in 1942 when he managed to get his army out intact. But when they got to India and they'd lost, you know, masses of people to disease as well as battle yeah, and monsoon and so on, they they didn't get any welcome at all. They were treated with, you know, more or less, they either ignored or 
sort of treated with disdain because yeah it wasn't the it wasn't treated as the the miracle that Dunkirk no exactly so there's this enormous double standard obviously with Europe being much closer to home and feeling more of a threat that is understandable but at the same time there were people being shipped out all through the war out to the far east and and you know why? Why were the, why did we pay less attention to them? Why weren't Kahima and Imphal these incredible victories celebrated as much as those in the in Europe? You know, Churchill yeah. didn't give any great speeches after Kahima or 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 the retaking of Mandalay. There was no national rejoicing, but the war in the East was the longest campaign of the Second World War, and you know the Fourteenth Army was we should be celebrating it much more particularly today because it was a multinational army. You know, 85% of that army was from India or Africa or Nepal. Or anywhere but England. Yeah. Um, they were, but, you know, there are lots of Brits fighting, uh, hence cautious safe out here. But I guess because, you know, it wasn't an entirely British army, perhaps, perhaps that came into play as well. It's interesting, the point of, yeah, it doesn't get talked about in as much detail or anything like that. I mean, I, I, I could tell you chapter and verse about the raid at Dieppe that was an absolute disaster. Yes, you know something that we shouldn't, we should really, you know, hang our heads strategically yeah. thinking. Yeah. Um, and yet, I had to read kind of James Holland's book to even know that the Battle of the Admin Box, the first time we yeah. actually stopped the Japanese yeah. in their tracks, was even a thing. Yes. Yes, you know, and it's, you know, it's just why, it's, yeah, why, and why, why is nothing about the war in the East taught in schools? It's a war in Europe all the way through Germany, Germany in the thirties, the war in Europe. You know, D-Day, Normandy, maybe get a mention of Al Alamein and Italy, and then oh, it's the atomic bomb. Well, you know, yeah. where, where's the mention of Burma? Where's yeah, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the entire Far East conflict was a load of prisoners of war. And then two massive explosions. Yeah, basically. That's. I mean, that's looking at... I'm still infuriated about how it's treated now. How was it treated then? You know, was... Well, you know, in a bit more detail, was was there the street parties for yeah, DJ? I were. mean, we see that classic kind of magazine cover of that poor girl getting kissed against her will in Times, yeah. Square, Times yeah. Square. Yeah. But, you know, that's the only thing you ever see about VJ. Yeah. yeah. Actually, you know, there were street parties and there were crowds on the mall. And outside Buckingham Palace. So I think, you know, at the time, people, you know, they were celebrating. On the other hand, you know, Churchill wasn't leader anymore. There was a new government. They were mm. looking much more to the future. So I think it was a very different set of circumstances, I suppose, to VE Day. You know, people had already been demobbed and, you know, people were sort of picking up the threads of their their lives to a degree. Yeah. But, you know, it was celebrated. But I, I, I wrote about this uh, last year for The Express and I went into um, the British newspaper archive. I don't know if you get that. It's online. Oh, I love that. Oh, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> Best £79 I ever spent. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And and I looked, and actually I looked at it for my book a lot, and you read in the newspapers, you know, the Surrey Advertiser or the you know, Newcastle or whatever, you know, all around the country. And you've got reporters going out and talking to people who were really excited about VE Day and their sons coming home. And, you know, as my great grandparents were, they had um, Edward, the eldest son, was fighting in Italy. And so VE Day really did mean he was coming home. Well, he was he was trying not to. He was trying to go and 
get over to Thailand and liberate Peter from his prisoner of war camp. But but for a lot of people, it it did mean they were safe. Their sons, their husbands, whatever, were going to come home. So so there was all these celebrations. But then you know, some of the reporters found people who were saying, "Well, all this bunting's up, and I still have no idea if my sons are alive or not." You know, people yeah, people with two or th- even three sons in prisoner of war camps in the Far East. And because the Japanese didn't allow any communication, you know, they got sort of one postcard saying, I'm being treated well, which they weren't. Curiously written, not in their handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, they had to tick a box and you knew what happened if they didn't tick it. And they didn't, you know, so they were in this awful limbo while the street parties and the bunting and everything was going up. So you, you just feel awful for those people when you read about it. You know, some... Yeah, Mrs. So-and-so saying, well, I don't know, my husband's on a ship somewhere in Pacific and I don't know if he's going to get back. And, you know, Mrs. So-and-so saying, well, you know, last I heard my boys were prisoners of the Japanese and I don't know if they're coming back. And then then you look at the name a few months later and you realise that only one of the sons did come back and the other one died of starvation or malnutrition in the prisoner of war camp. So, you you know, you just... The idea of being in that position when all your neighbours are understandably going, thank God, it just doesn't bear thinking about. And so to, you know, to to feel that they, that experience is still being sidelined. I think that's what. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Now. It's it's less of a thing now, isn't it? That it it was then, you know, at least they marked VJ Day. Yeah, exactly. Back at that point, and it's drifted off in level where VE Day hasn't. Yeah, and there's great groups online, you know, people like the um, Far East Prisoners of War, you know, Facebook groups, um, who, you know, who really do keep it alive amongst themselves. But I think, you know, more broadly, newspapers and TV and radio, it just, it's never given equal prominence. It's really strange. Yeah. Well, you mentioned... um, you know, going going over and liberating Peter. You know, like in, in the book, Peter's well, I say in the book, in reality as well. Yeah. Uh, Peter is captured at the fall of Singapore. Yeah. Pretty much the the moment that we enter into it, and and at that time is still suffering horrendous treatment at the hands of the Japanese, and your grandfather Walter is still fighting the Japanese. Mm. Post war, when you've been when you speak to them, you know how how did they feel about that dis- particular disparity? You know, you've got two people there who saw both sides of the war in the Far mm. East, both winning it and losing it, and yet they look at something that wasn't their war being celebrated. How yeah. how did they? I imagine Walter will have had something to say about it. Um, yes, I mean he wait straight after the war he. He went. He was in India just before the partition and independence, and then he went to Malaya. And so he wasn't really in in, in Britain very much at all until he retired from the army in the nineteen seventies. But so I think immediately, I, I don't think it would have had much impact on him. But yes, I think he was very keen to have the war in the East recognised and remembered to the same extent. And I think um, with Peter. He didn't really want any kind of commemorations of any of it, actually. He didn't want, you know, he he sort of ignored both VE Day and VJ Day. Um, I mean, he, he just wanted to remember on his own. Um, yeah. And he felt that any commemorations were, he just said, what's the point? Nobody knows what they're talking about. No one who was there has any understanding of it. So I'd rather, you know, I'd rather have nothing to do with it. 
But yes, I think, you know, I think I think with a lot of Far East veterans and prisoners, you know, they, it took ages for them to get back. Some of them were not getting back till nearly the end of the year. And then really everyone had very much moved on and there were some of them were met, you know, on the quayside, but some of the ships yeah. weren't. And then there was this very odd order to the surviving prisoners of war not to talk about their experiences in the camps because it would be upsetting really? to those. Yeah. So they were told, I can't remember what the actual order was called, it had a name, but it just said, you know, basically keep your lips closed about what happened in the prisoner of war camps. It's not good for you to talk about it and it's not good for the families of those who didn't survive to hear what they went through before they died. And so all these people were, yeah, they were, they were unable to talk about it. And I think that was for. Yeah. That, I didn't know that. That's damaging. Yeah. As yeah. if, you know, as if, as if the British government at the time just couldn't get any worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there they go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously nobody knew about PTSD and things like that then, you know, we'd had shell shock and, and I just think, I just think the whole war in the East had just there's a sort of slight feeling of, we don't want to know. It was, you know, people surrendered and it wasn't, yeah, it, it just wasn't as popular, I suppose. At the start of the war, you don't want to shout about the fall of Singapore. No. You know, you don't, you don't want to shout about getting royally kicked out of various British possessions yeah, you know, overseas. And... But let's, let's not forget, you know, we took them back and we took them back against an enemy that was fighting way more brutally than the one in Europe. Yes. And was you know thoroughly entrenched by then, and and yeah, yeah, it, it was a you know an incredible feat, really, what was achieved, particularly in Burma. You know that was a a long, long campaign. Yeah, um, it never let up. And then Borneo, where John, who who in the books, um, well, and in real life, was married to to <laughs> my aunt Ruth. You know, he was part of a guerrilla force that was dropped into Borneo. He wasn't even dropped in there till July 1945. So even yeah, so the... he actually got to go to the VE Day party and then started <laughs> fighting the war. Well, he would have done if he wasn't training in Australia. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that again, that and that was a, an Australian theatre primarily. But you know, the, the 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 fighting that went on in in, in some of the places in the Far East was just, you know. In, incredible and so tough and so under-resourced and what they achieved was phenomenal and yet who knows what happened in Warnia now and yeah yeah including me um, <laughs> you know, talking about Borneo and uh, and John yeah for him the war was definitely not over because no. he he starts his active service pretty much at the closing stages of well not just the closing stages of the war in Europe but actually the joins in the closing stages of the war in the far east as well yes, um yeah. you know can you tell us a bit more of his really rather surprising story oh it's, yeah it's an amazing story um and actually um although i am obviously wanting to promote my own book there's a, a brilliant book <laughs> there's too many spoiler warnings but you know <laughs> the details in there yeah so there's a brilliant book that's just come out um in australia and the uk by a um and professor of anthropology called christine helliwell and, and the book is called semut S-E-M-U-T, and it is specifically about this very secret operation in Borneo um, in 1945, where sort of guerrilla teams of people from Britain, from Australia, from New Zealand, from Canada, 
Chinese, Malays, loads of different nationalities. They were recruited and John was recruited by SOE in mm-hmm. in London. They were sort of trawling through he long story, but he got back to Britain and had been had joined up the army in the army and had been um in the sort of trawl. I think somebody said somebody mentioned that he spoke various local languages and Sarawak, the part of, of Borneo he'd served yeah. in before the war as a as a sort of essentially civil servant district officer. So he was yeah, interviewed in some sort of shady hotel room in London by an SOE officer. And he and a, and a few other sort of middle class Brits were then sent out to Australia to train in jungle warfare and guerrilla warfare and unarmed combat. And I mean, they'd already done the SOE training in Britain of how to you know, silently slit someone's throat and blow things up and so on. And then they went sent out to Australia where their training continued. And then they were dropped at various points. John was one of the later ones to be dropped, but there were um, people, other people were dropped in earlier 1945 in the jungles of Borneo. And the brief was to join up. The idea was to join up with tri- local tribes there, Dayaks, and cause havoc behind Japanese lines. So the Japanese were mainly concentrated around the towns and the coast. And the idea was to wreck their morale, disrupt their operations and get intelligence to the Australian forces that they were going to eventually land on the sort of D-Day in Borneo. Yeah. So there were lots of these small teams and they were living in the jungle, living with headhunters. So headhunting had been outlawed before the war, long before the war when it was a British colony. But when they dropped the the Semet teams in, Semet means ant because they were going to be you know stealthy and so on. And when they dropped the teams in, they, they said, right, well, you know, that, that thing about not being allowed to go headhunting, you know, taking heads, you can forget all that. You can go back to taking heads <laughs> as long as they're Japanese. <laughs> and they were, you know, offered offering rewards for Japanese heads. So it was a hugely effective guerrilla campaign. And, uh, you know, and, and it really did devast- de- destroy Japanese morale. And it did, you know, the surrender was a long time coming in Borneo, but it would have been even longer without without the summit team. So it's a it's an extraordinary and very little known story, which I I do tell briefly in in my book. And uh, and John was was out there, you know, for for the last half of 1945, and he you know working alongside these these teams of 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 headhunting yeah. tribes. So it was a, it was a phenomenal sort of multinational effort but a very very brutal brutal one you know it involved poison darts and chopping off heads and all sorts of things yeah yeah it was like <laughs> possibly even more terrifying than the going up with the japanese is looking at your own allies in that <laughs> yeah well they were very um very very nice people um the diets as long as you were unless japanese. you were japanese yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> And incredibly brave, and also you know they knew all about living with jungle and so on. They, was, that was where they lived. Yeah, I mean we you know, we used them as uh, I say used them. We uh, we took you know took their services as guides you know in later conflicts yes. back in the same area, didn't yes. we? I mean they they yeah. served with quite a lot of scary distinction and scary methods, but yes, but, yes, but they were they were effective. Yeah. Okay, so we mentioned the war in the Far East not really stopping in the way that the war in Europe did, and John's sort of comments and experiences and so forth there. Walter then went on to command and serve in the Malaya emergency, which is another conflict that nobody knows anything about. Yeah. Um, it actually went on for twice as long as the war. 
Yes. You know, can you tell us, you know, without giving too many book spoilers away, you know, some of his experiences from from fighting terrorism in Malaya? Yes. Yeah, so he um, he was went to Malaya in 1947 and the emergency began in 1948. Um, and he was there sort of on and off for the next 12 years until it ended in 1960. So the Malayan emergency was in very broad stroke terms. It was started when the Chinese communists began attacking rubber plantations. And a lot of these Chinese communists had fought alongside the Allies in the war and been trained and armed by them. And they'd quite cunningly um, hung on to their weapons and um, and their training. (laughs) And And history repeats there, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, they were quite good at that. So they began, you know, they wanted a, a communist state in Malaya and the British wanted to eventually give Malaya independence, but only in the form that they wanted it to take, i.e. democratic. So they were not about to hand Malaya over to uh, the Communist Party. And so this guerrilla warfare began with the Chinese communists, abbreviated to CTs by the security forces, hiding out in the jungle and attacking rubber plantations, um, attacking, they assassinated the governor of of Malaya and the British had to sort of scramble to um, fight back. And one of the first things they did was to set up this force called Ferret Force, which was meant to be a kind of strike force, a a sort of special, you know, um, guerrilla force, um, employing some of the civilians who had... Uh, fought in the war for various sort of not guerrilla what, what's the word I'm looking for um irregular irregular that's the one irregular forces but and Walter was given ferret force to command but it, you know he realized it it wasn't really going to work um in that way um and it was quite quickly disbanded and he was asked to set up the jungle warfare training school because you know most troops who were out there didn't have experience of of jungle warfare which is a yeah they were mostly national service guys weren't they yeah exactly i mean i don't know if you've read or watched the books by um what's he called leslie leslie oh virgin soldiers oh that's one i've not read on this virgin soldiers is great and it's about national servicemen you know in in malaire and you do really feel for you know these sort of fresh recruits coming from somewhere like Yorkshire and suddenly the heat of Malaya and you know the jungle is a is a very very tough place to fight in and yeah you know the CTs you know they lived in the jungle they could cover their tracks and you know they were very hard to find in the jungle and you know sadly there isn't as much jungle now as there was then but you know it then did cover pretty much the whole sort of spine of the country and it it was you know very impenetrable so it's hard to find them and and if you had people who didn't know how to operate in the jungle um you know they could just blunder in and make make a bit of noise and you wouldn't have any hope of of catching um the cts in their in their camp so um the sort of modus operandi that Walter my grandfather um really sort of helped to pioneer was you know le- laying these ambushes um when they get they his thing was working and this is 
you know came from above as well from from general templar who who took charge eventually was working very closely with the the police with special branch to get intelligence to find out where the ct camps were in the jungle yeah and then it was a question of approaching them um well it's very very hard to approach a, a camp um in the jungle without being spotted or heard so one way of of trying to catch people was to lay ambushes and reading about the accounts of how my grandfather how walter and and, and the gurkhas and and how other regiments did this you know they they'd sit in these ambushes for days literally days without moving because they'd had a tip off that you know some high ranking communist was going to meet another high ranking communist and it was going to be a, a crucial meeting and they would they would literally mm. sit in these in clumps of grass you know for days on end um waiting to spring the ambush and sometimes the the meeting never happened and they'd have to go home with you know not having achieved it but at other times you know that it succeeded and and there'd be these these ambushes and they'd either kill or capture the people they they were after yeah and it's worth pointing out as well i think that it, when they did kill one as well they had to bring the body back to get it centrally identified yes. <laughs> they couldn't just leave it out there go we've got one yes you know yes. they're, they're bringing them back on bamboo poles to yes. drop them off at the police station to go is this one of the ones on the list yes yes yeah yeah but you know the the, the conditions that they were fighting in were you know well uh, we're all more familiar with it probably from the vietnam war and you know the the the, the booby traps the man traps that were set and all the other things you have to contend with in the jungle the humidity the creatures the diseases the fact that you don't really see the sun the thickness of the undergrowth that yeah. you know, with the thorns that tear your flesh and and so on and 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 as you were mentioning um before we went on air the boots that they were issued with fell apart after about two weeks in the jungle so yeah, yeah it was a it was a very um very tough tough war but you know, ultimately successful yeah, we spoke to one guy that had served in it at one point, and he, he said the, uh, the thing about the jungle is that everything in the jungle is trying to kill you, <laughs> and the CTs might miss. <laughs> He's viewed the CTs as actually safer than the, than the jungle environment themselves. Some people get on with the jungle. There's this famous um, book by Freddie Spencer Chapman, who spent two or three years, I think, in the Second World War in the jungle hiding from the Japanese, and his book was called The Jungle is Neutral. So if you work out how how to work with the jungle rather than sort of fight against it, you're all right. But mm. I think that's definitely easier said than done. Yeah, very very much. But, so. but that was part of you know my grandfather's thing, and and with the jungle warfare training school was to teach people how to do that, how to to make the jungle, if not your friend, at least not your enemy. Yeah, how how to stop the jungle trying to kill you? Yeah, yeah, and people who'd been through that training were you know much more successful than than others but it was a constant you know constantly constantly training to keep on top yeah. of their game and, and constantly evolving as well because you know the, exactly. the cts were fairly good at adapting with something when they found something didn't work then they would start trying something new yeah and yeah. they'd been doing it longer than we had yeah they were you know incredibly efficient effective gorillas they're terrifying i yeah. mean listen listen to interviews with them they're they're just yeah the yeah. words cannot just explain just how disturbing some of these people yes. are. Yeah, I mean, reading my grandfather's accounts of, of Malaire and, you know, when 
when they came across the bodies of people who had been um uh who the the cts had decided were were traitors which you know maybe they were maybe they were cooperating with the british um but the the tortures they would carry out on them uh before they died was yeah just very stomach turning yeah very brutal uh, but you know quite a, effective in terrifying people into not yeah i mean that that was that was the terror you know they, yeah. this will happen to you and your family yeah so going back to our kind of point uh, again the, to, to close off the disparity between sort of v day and vj day that that started this whole whole rage how would you like to see that addressed what would you like to see done that you feel would would, would improve things i think really it needs to be taught in schools because it's, it's such an interesting war and, and you know my kids have been through gcse history and actually gcs uh, an a-level history and the same subjects come up you know year in year out the curriculum mm. change and you know the war in the east is fascinating particularly we are a more multinational multicultural society why shouldn't we find out you know what why don't why don't people know that there were african regiments fighting in burma alongside indian regiments and gurkha regiments this is a this is an incredible story you know why don't people know about you know the philippines where the americans fought and 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 borneo and and java and malaya you know and burma the you know the retreat and then you know this incredible yeah. fight back and, and and retaking these are these are good stories and they should be told and they explain so much of why the world map looks as it does today and yeah i i think it's and it, it's all the more amazing now really i mean obviously germany is off are our friends and, and and so is japan um but it's it's strange now that you know the chinese were our great allies during the war in the east and now they're not and you know and that's that's really interesting and and i just feel that no one knows anything about that and 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 we should so yes i think we should should be taught in schools there should be more about it on on the tv and when vj day is commemorated on you know on the bbc there should be they should have rearranged the programming around that a bit so that there are you know films like virgin soldier not virgin soldiers that's um and a film you know films about um the war in the east there's there's a few of them not as many as there are about the war in europe yeah. but it just needs to be brought, you know, to the forefront a bit. Um, and they need to not put Bridge on the River Kwai on. There are other stories yeah, to tell about the war exactly, in the Far East. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and now that Prince Philip's gone, you know, he was the last link in the royal family with the war in the East because, of course, he fought there. He was, you know, on a, on a ship in yeah. um, in the Far East. So it'd be, it'd be really good if somebody like Prince William really focused on it, I suppose, and really, you know reminded people about it of where his his grandfather fought and what that was all yeah. about oh if you're listening your grace there there are your orders <laughs> so now that you now that you've got again truly excellent book out there well what are you working on next well i'm at the moment i'm just doing lots of journalism there's a couple of subjects i'm sort of thinking about i'm very keen to get back to the war in the east i haven't really nailed it down yet but it will be something you know something in the east something world war ii east i suspect 
Um, yeah. I would like to do something more in Burma. I'd like to get back to Burma, but I don't know how likely that is in the near future. So, yeah, watch this space. And in the meantime, read my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Annabelle. That was uh, that was that, that was absolutely fantastic. It's given me even somebody who's, you know, Second World War quite focused like myself. That's given me a lot of other things that I just didn't even know. Yeah, we'll get we'll get you back on when your next book is out, yes. and uh, <laughs> and you can rage rage about something else or rage the same thing again. <laughs> well, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. If uh, if you'd like to see more of Annabelle's work, then you can follow her on Twitter at Annabelle Venning, um, and also buy her excellent books to War with the Walkers and Following the Drum: The Lives of Army Wives, Past and Present. And we'll put links to both of those in the show notes. So once again, Annabelle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you both. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel and Kyle is at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own History Rages because we want to know what you wish people would just stop believing. And you can use the hashtag History Rage. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye.